0: not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's join dot com.
1: Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent
2: people. You cannot shake hands
1: with a clenched fist produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of god the kingdom of heaven
2: that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind
1: we're not saying that planet earth is coming to an end We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes.
2: 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore
1: excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena.
2: Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. There is very compelling evidence that we we may not be alone.
1: This is the garden of.
2: Welcome, everybody, to episode 35 of Garden of Doom. I am Jeff, and it is April 4th, so happy holidays to everyone who's celebrating a holiday. Today is Easter Sunday, so a special happy Easter for those who celebrate, and happy Passover for those who celebrate that holiday as well. Let me give you a couple housekeeping items. One, this was supposed to be episode 36. I did record an interview with somebody. I'm not going to say their name Uh, because, you know, I'm not about naming names here or anything like that, if it's, you know, not a good thing. But I did not feel that the interview was either informative, educational, or entertaining. I have done shows before where I haven't felt they've been all three of those things. That's the goal, obviously. But almost every show I've done, if not every show I've done, I thought, hit at least one of those. At least, you know, maybe it was more educational than entertaining um, or educational and informative, which are sort of similar. Um, You know, I sort of divide education between something that is objectively useful information and informative that something might be, you know, more fun information. You know, fun at a cocktail party or just something that is, you know, interesting like from a hobbyist perspective. Whatever. doesn't matter. In any case, the interview I did uh, earlier this week I didn't think it was any of those things that I didn't want to put it out. I have done that. I have. I'm sorry. I've done that once before, and I felt bad about it. And I chose to put that show out. And I'm not harboring any illusions here. I know this is not 60 minutes. I know this is not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know I'm not uh, Quentin Tarantino, and that you know, everything I'm, look, I'm putting out there is being scrutinized by millions upon millions of people, et cetera, et cetera. But this is my name and it's my product and there's a certain standard I want and there's a certain level of quality that I want to be associated with my product. And, you know, uh, you know, I accept my technical issues and my technical problems, um, but I don't want to put a show that e- even if the audience can, you know, turn up the volume or put up with... The difference in sound levels between myself and the guest or whatever the case may be that they're still gonna at least feel that they spent their hour or two hours um well and again i I've put out one show where i didn't really think that it hit any of my boxes and i wasn't about to do that a second time so all of you listening realize i'm apologizing about something that you didn't have to ingest uh but just know where i'm coming from this is building to what you ask well Today's show is a solo show, and I don't love doing solo shows. I've done, I think, two or three in the past. Um, and I'm not saying that they were bad, uh, but I don't love doing it. I'm not that comfortable talking to nobody. I'm, I'm getting closer to that point. Um, I know lots of podcasters do this routinely. That's sort of their jam. It's not mine. I like working with a person or people. Uh, I find that's more interesting for conversation, and I-, I like to hear more than one voice, and you know, that- that's just me. Um, so one solo show I did was catching up on news items, uh, which had uh, buried up, and at that point that was uh, piled up is a better word. Um, at that point, covering news was really essential part of the show. It sort of, Drifted by, it's always on the back burner, but I sort of use the Facebook page for that. So if you're someone who comes to Garden of News to get sort of that alternative news that you don't uh, find somewhere else, and we don't mean alternative news like uh, a prior administration not to be spoken um, of here, but you know things about f- science that you don't necessarily hear on CNN or, or Fox or wherever or uh, biology or anthropology, archaeology, you know, uh, some of the more extreme weather event news. Uh, just, you know, sort of the, the, the stuff that you want to know about but really can't get in one place easily and not enough. I try to curate that for you and put that on the Garden of Doom Facebook page. So please follow that if, if you like that part of the show. Uh, the other solo show I did, um, I, I tried to do, like, sort of pop culture reviews uh, interspersed with the stories of voodoo. Um, And I thought that was an interesting show, but I don't know. You know, I don't think it was the greatest product I put out. Anyway, so we're doing another solo show today. So with some hesitancy and some apology, I I put out this solo show. Uh, I do want to let you know that I'm talking with two other speakers from the NACON conference. um, And they both seem to be very interested and very interesting. Um, But I'm going to, you know set those dates up, and I may have two surprise shows this week, um, I'm not sure, but I, I there, there might be three shows dropping this week, because next week we go back to Land of the Lost with our expert panel, so, and, and listen, I know you were hearing before, educational, is Land of the Lost educational? No. Is it entertaining? I sure as hell hope so. I think it's entertaining. I think it's a whole lot of fun, and I think it's informative in its own way. And listen, maybe it's educational in its own way, too, uh, because we go pretty deep, but we have fun. Anyway, you know, that—that that is to say the Garden of Doom is not always serious, despite the name. We, we can be frivolous as well. Um, but today's show is going to be based on a couple things, and they are two books. So I'm going to call this the Book Report episode. Um, and I read two books recently uh, from two well-thought-of authors on very different sides of equations. So I may have mentioned to you in the past Dr. Avi Loeb, who's the uh, physicist, the uh, astrophysicist from Harvard, the head of, uh, of one of their departments, um, and wrote a book called Extraterrestrial. And it's out now, and I read it. I also read finally Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. So, Extraterrestrial is a 2020 publication, brand new, still hardcover. Uh, Chariots of the Gods is from the 1960s, uh, but sort of the famous father of the ancient aliens theory, at least the modern one. Um, so. A lot of things that we've talked about on this show before. We've made reference to von Danigen. i followed a lot of his work, but through other people. I never actually read the book until earlier last year. So I'm going to start with a quote from Ezekiel 1212. I don't normally get directly biblical here, I think. Um, and most of the quotes I give are the proverbs I've made up. This is actually from the, uh, the scripture itself. So it goes like this. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. So what does that mean here? I guess it's sort of saying that sometimes things are in plain sight, but we choose not to see them and we choose not to hear them. And that is sort of what, well, sort of what both of these authors are saying. So Dr. Loeb is Harvard's top astronomer. He lays out a controversial theory that our solar system was recently visited by an advanced alien technology from a distant uh, solar system. This is well documented. I think it was first found in 2017. I don't think. I know it was first found in 2017, or at least that's the reports. Who knows what the truth is? Um, ironically, it was first spotted by an observatory in Hawaii, and the observatory is named UmA. Uuma, Uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Again, ironically, the, well, this is why it's ironic, um, because they named the object after the observatory's location, and that's the Hawaiian word for scout. So that's the irony because Dr. Loeb's theory is that this is a visitation of alien technology. Now, bear with me, because he's not saying that the technology is necessarily a live visit, or even an intentional one, He's just saying there was alien technology. In fact, he thinks that the most likely explanation is that it's an artifact, is that it's from a destroyed vehicle, or it is a vehicle that's no longer functioning. Um, But nevertheless, it's evidence of alien technology. So let's go back to late 2017, where this story begins as far as the public record is concerned. Scientists at a Hawaiian observatory glimpsed an object soaring through our inner solar system it was moving so quickly that it could only have come from another star. So, interstellar. That's what interstellar means, more than one star system, no, nothing more than that. Avi Loeb, Harvard's top astronomer, showed that it was not an asteroid, based on data, and we'll get into that in a little bit. He showed it was not an asteroid. He showed it was moving too fast, and it was along what's called as a strange orbit, again, not in, in an ellipse or a circle or any other orbit that... Uh, any other bodies that we have, meaning astronomers writ large, have discovered or tracked. Um, Going back to, as far as we know, the Mayans and the Egyptians and the Persians and everyone else that that was doing astronomy long before uh, our current ages have. Um, It also left no trail of gas or debris in its its wake, which is important, and we'll get to that in in a couple minutes, And that there was only one conceivable explanation. The object was a piece of advanced technology. He surmises that this is the first interstellar visitor to be started, spotted in our solar system. And he outlined this theory and its implications for science, for religion, and for the future of our spe- species in our planet. Yes, I'm reading some of that from the excerpts of the book itself, um, because I'm not going to go into all of the implications for science, religion, and the future of our species on our planet. I'll let Dr. Loeb speak for himself on that, but I do want to read a little bit about, uh, and this is from his formal bio so that you know that this, this guy is not a joke, he's, he's not, you know, this is not fringe science. Um, he is the Frank B. Baird, B-A-I-R-D, Jr., professor of science at Harvard University, He's the chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. He's the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. So, obviously, very credentialed. He also chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and serves as the science theory director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. He's also the chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy. Of the National Academies, so again more objective credentials there. He's the author of four books and over 700 scientific papers. He's an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. In 2012, Time selected Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in the space field. This object was observed for eight months It had no cometary tail. It was eight times wider than it was long, and there was no natural sail, but there was a solar sail. The movement was different from any star or any other celestial body that's been observed. It was moving at a certain rate, but the rate changed. Now, that is not completely abnormal, although maybe it sounds like it does. Trajectory does react to the gravity of sun or any large object Um, obviously the sun is the center of our solar system so that's what uh, most objects react to from uh, from gravity Uh, so again that's normal but then it pushed away from the sun which is abnormal given these circumstances why is it normal a lot of times comets will accelerate from the sun because they get sort of like a thrust push by uh, debris melting off it, so that's why the the lack of a tail is important. The tail is the tell-tale sign, so we've got T-A-I-L and T-A-L-E, tell-tale sign that it's a comet or at least a natural object because the ice melts off of it and those gases act sort of as a thrust. So the lack of a tail told us it was not a comet or something that had a lot of ice and other meltables uh, on it that uh, were impacted by the heat of the sun, thus changing the trajectory and the speed rate. It also had sort of a cigar shape to it, it was long, but the the famous image of Uma Wuma was really an artist's rendering and you know, I, I think we've all sort of accepted that cigar as true, almost like that old Star Trek episode from the original series where they had that uh, cigar thing that was almost like a, a black hole. I don't, I don't remember the end of it, but hopefully people who are sort of my age or Star Trek fans know what I speak of. Anyway, um, Loeb believes that, that the object actually was more flat than cigar-shaped. Cigar Not cigar. I don't know what a cigar is, um, but cigar-shaped, so more flat. Uh, again, it was, I think, eight times uh, wider than it was, uh, I'm sorry, longer than it was deep. There was no infrared radiation that detected off of it. The lack of the, the, lack of the radiation detection meant that the size was about 200 meters. Uh, 200 meters is like two football fields. Uh, no, it's more than two football fields because we go by yards, and meters are a little bit bigger than yards, so you know let's just call it uh, two and a third football fields long. The high, uh, the reflection level was at the high end of reflection from other space objects. Now obviously since it's got a reflection level comparable to other space objects it doesn't make it particularly unusual but it was at the high end, uh, and the high end of something that long is unusual, when it's that flat. So again think of like a a long rectangle in space, so a large reflective surface and and that's measured by the infrared radiation so they can detect it. Um, It's different than with circular objects um, or longer asteroids or you know anyway anything else that that we know that's floating out there uh, not really floating orbiting out there um, has have different infrared signatures and those signatures give us give us clues as to the shape or can actually help us measure the shapes with some specificity. The push meant a larger area for its weight, thus it had to be wide and thin. It was an unnatural shape. Uh, They thought it was a possible light sail, maybe pancake shape, but there was no sail that appeared. Nature doesn't make things this thin. It would have to be a sliver. Um, if it was a hydrogen iceberg, which was one of the theories, it would have evaporated shortly. It did not evaporate. In fact, it changed trajectories and left our solar system. It's It's gone. It's outside of uh, what we call, uh, um, there's the inner belt, and then there's the Kuiper belt, and then there's the Oort cloud. So it's at least in the Oort cloud, if not past that. Um, It was moving at about 58,600 miles per hour um, before uh, before it left uh, the outer belt, the Kuiper belt. There's also a dust cloud theory, saying there was a dust cloud. Um, Dust clouds are not dense enough uh, and they are not likely to survive that close to the sun. So while that can't be ruled out entirely, Dr. Loeb theorized or opines that it's almost certainly not that. Other theories were that it was a piece of a bigger object. Dr. Loeb says no such shapes have been seen like this before and again it was an unnatural shape and for something to have been sliced off like that, you know, it's more likely to have been sliced off a large piece of artificial technology than off, say, a planet or a moon or a comet. Um, So, uh, you know, he did not say this. I'm saying it. I'm rewatching Battlestar Galactica on Peacock, which I endorse. I, I remember loving it. I'm still enjoying it. I see more loopholes now than I did the first time around, but that's natural when you see something more than once. But it's still a fun show. Uh, anyway, p- picture taking a giant laser torch and slicing off the top of the Battlestar Galactica, sort of lengthwise. It's sort of that kind of shape, and that's there's no natural shapes like that again, traveling in space that have been observed, uh, now or ever. Okay, comets change speed in a predictable...
0: If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky
0: Play for free. at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Fashion. They have a corresponding loss of mass. That corresponding loss of mass is typically ten percent. That also causes a change in the rate of the spin, typically to match the corresponding loss of the mass. And again, also the tail from the evaporation, which causes the thrust. Umuumuamua didn't have any of those things. Its rate of spin did not change. There was no loss of mass and uh, there was no change in the spin rate. And of course, there was the no outgassing, which we talked about before. Now... Dr. Loeb says it's easy to test these theories by positioning cameras in that direction. What does he mean by that direction? The direction from which Uma Wuma first entered our uh, our solar system from extra, the solar system, or from interstellar. Uh, he believes that this is likely one of me- many, and that this might be like a bottle that you find from the ocean in the sand with a node in it, that it was a message, maybe not an intentional message, but that we should take it as a message and we should look for more. And the most likely place to look for more is where we found the first bottle Uh, because if somebody is sending messages or a ship got cleaved or technology got uh, altered or destroyed and is part of it, it was floating this way or traveling this way, it's likely that more of it is floating that way from more or less the same area. And so if we position cameras in slight degrees, we'll cover a lot of literal space uh, and the the field and the uh, computers can see a whole lot wider than uh, the natural eye, obviously. He firmly agrees that there's a lot of nonsense around UFOs and extraterrestrials and, and he doesn't subscribe to that kind of madness. Uh, but he also rejects that there's no science around the study of Alien technology or unidenti- unidentified flying objects, uh, unidentified flying objects. He says all science has junk science and all science has wrong terms. I mean, we're sort of living through that now with the pandemic. We had theories that, that started. We have theories that were correct. We have theories that were incorrect. In the beginning, we were all worried about surfaces and everybody was working worried about our Amazon packages. Um, or UPS packages giving us COVID, uh, and people were desanitizing surfaces and wiping down doorknobs and things like that. And as it turned out that, you know, the, the disease generally couldn't live for about a second on a, a surface. Um, you know, and that, you know, that was sort of, junk science and it was temporary um and so you know again there's junk science all around us and there's science that's proven wrong and there's science that's proven right it's a lot of trial and error he hypothesized that uma Wuma was not operational its age is unknown it's since left the range of any pragmatic operation basically it means we can't see it anymore, or we can barely see it anymore. So we can't take any measurements or anything of that nature. They They would make it a useful subject. Now, there's a new theory and it was actually replayed today, not today, but, uh, well, I listened today, but on sci fry which is, um, I think, part of the NPR network. Uh, but it's, it's a longstanding science podcast. Ira Flato's the host. Even on Big Bang Theory, Sheldon, <laughs> I think I think it was Sheldon, was once a guest on uh, Science Friday. Actually, it might have been Sheldon and and uh, Leonard. doesn't matter. Anyway, just to point out that it's a pretty mainstream podcast. So I believe the uh, professors who put this out were from Northwest Arizona University, and they believe it's part of a destroyed planet. And that's the theory that conventional science is accepting. Um, So I want you, the audience, to know that is what conventional science thinks that's part of a destroyed planet, okay? Dr. Loeb was aware of this. He rejects it he's in the minority. Doesn't mean he's right. Doesn't mean he's wrong. Certainly doesn't mean he's right just because I'm covering his theory and his book on the show. Um, I am not an astrophysicist. I'm not an astro anything. I don't even play for the the Houston Astros. Um, and I remember the Jetsons dog Astro. And I remember his first name was Tralfaz. Ruch. So don't listen to me any more than anyone else. But I wanted to put that out there. But He did say that he did not think that it was a particularly convincing theory that it was part of a destroyed planet, again, because of the shape. The length and the width just don't match anything that's natural. So the chances of it being that thin and that wide uh, and uh, and that long in space from a natural occurrence are astronomically small, pun intended. That was my pun, by the way, not his. Then again... Literally, it's an astronomical finding. So it, it very well could be. And again, I, it's that's the conventional accepted theory now. Seems a little easy. I, I find Dr. Loeb's arguments to be compelling. But again, I don't have any background in the subject. But I have not heard a single person, and I've been looking. I haven't heard a single person, seen a single study, heard a single interview, read a single article where anyone else has pointed out any evidence of any other naturally occurring item in the known uh, solar system or interstellar objects that we can observe. And, you know, we've mapped trillions of stars and I think hundreds of millions of black holes. Obviously, the smaller the object, the harder it is to see it, I suppose, I imagine, I presume. Um, But again, there's been nothing like this before. So to say it's just a part of a destroyed planet i don't know seems like a bit of a cop-out to me in a sort of low-hanging fruit that nobody can disprove it i mean recently there's theories that um part of a destroyed planet are sitting there in algeria i think and in uh northeastern africa and in the earth's core look it up If, if you don't believe me look it up google uh Piece of a plant, destroyed planet in the Earth's core, and in Africa, and you'll see that there that, that it's, this is almost accepted scientific fact that at some point a planet a, or a destroyed planet or a smaller planet uh, crashed into the Earth. Some people surmise that it is that the moon is a relic of that, or the moon was formed by part of that collision, um, and that there is actually pieces of another planet. Uh, sticking out of Africa, uh, but also in the Earth's core, in our molten core, I, I imagine through some other uh, layers of the Earth's crust. I just saw Godzilla versus Kong last night, so that would put a little hole in the hollow Earth theory. Um, but anyway, the point I was trying to get to is look at the shape of those things. They are not rectangles or long discs or like long guitar picks or anything like that at all. They look like you would expect chunks giant big chunks like mountain chunks so you know not that one thing has to be another but the relationship seems to uh well the closest thing we have to actual evidence here on earth of a destroyed planet chunk uh doesn't look anything like a uh, like your cell phone shape so dr Loeb does agree with uh sort of drake's equation that if you're looking for extraterrestrial life you should find evidence you should find structures you should find pollution you should find lights you should find single uh, signals by the way as an aside that's part of the issue i have with the more sitchin theory of things with that there's were ancient civilizations on earth with great technology in abundance um because we haven't found any evidence of it. And I know that there's shows and books and photos of, of things that purport to be ancient technology and we and they say we just don't understand it or we're misinterpreting it. I don't think so. I don't, you know, I don't rule anything out entirely, but I, I don't think so. I think if there was technology, we would recognize advanced machines for what they were um, as opposed to, you know, pictures of, Creatures with giant heads and and saying, well, that had to be a spacesuit. I think there's plenty of other explanations um, that it wasn't actually a spacesuit, including the fact that it might have been intended to be a space helmet. But that was just someone's imagination because they knew they couldn't breathe in in water and, and, you know, whatever else the case may be. Uh, I certainly subscribe to imagination as being just as likely an explanation. Anyway, back to our story. So. We're talking about Drake's equation and that Dr. Loeb accepts that and agrees with it. Drake's equation is basically the foundation for SETI. There's a formula. Do not ask me to explain to you what what this formula is, but I'm going to read it. It's capital N equals capital R asterisk uh, dot lowercase f lowercase p dot lowercase n lowercase e dot lowercase f one dot lowercase f lowercase i, dot, lowercase f, lowercase c, dot, lowercase l. Okay, everybody knows what that is. You're following along, of course. Um, This is described in English as a probabilistic argument used to estimate the number of active, communicative, extraterrestrial civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay. That's just a a fancy way of saying that that that's the formula that they use to estimate how and where to find civilizations and SETI and where they're pointing and where they take their readings from is, is based largely on Drake's equation. I don't know if they stray from it or not, but they're looking for life signs. They're looking for evidence of structures. They're looking for pollution. They're looking for lights. They're listening for signals. Loeb says that Drake's equation not, is not useful for finding relics necessarily. Drake's is for finding active signals or signals that were active that you know, maybe took a lot of time to get to us, like radio signals. Now, radio signals move at the speed of light. But if you remember that the closest star from us, I think, is 4.2 or 4.3 light years away, even that would take uh, – uh, years to get here. And if there's not intelligent life, they're using radio signals. Obviously, that's the closest star to us. So all others are further away, some much further away. As far as other um, things that we might see, I mean, obviously, pollution and actual artifacts would need actual visual sight, which uh, takes longer uh, to breakthrough atmospheres and things like that you know and i'm not ignoring the images on mars uh, where people say that there's pyramids or the face on mars or whatever i'm just skipping over it i mean i you know i'm not ignoring it in my head but i'm not talking about it because that that is you know that that's theory that could be shadows who knows and there's things on mars but by things i mean rovers from three different countries driving around right now and you know, hopefully more will be revealed shortly.
0: If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I
2: pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for
2: details. Um, So relic-seekings like archaeology, and that requires exp- exploration and observation as options. Uh, he's certainly an advocate for what's called astroarchaeology in academia, and that is a real thing. There's something called astroarchaeology. There's also uh, a lot of ocean archaeology uh, that's that's a growing field, and I'm looking into um, finding guests and that to talk about that in the near future. If any of you know anyone, let me know. Astroarchaeology or ocean archaeology or uh, paleoceanography, these are all fields that are out there. They're all real. Um as far as Dr. Loeb is position-wise on the current Mars research, he believes that microbes are of some limited use. Uh, obviously, they show some life on a primitive level. Uh, they can establish you can establish bases on places like Mars for archaeological sites, and you can look for non-lunar or non-terran objects there as well, and and that could spur on other. Um, exploration. Now, with that further exploration, who's going to pay for it? Governments? Maybe. Private companies? Would they do it just for the archaeology? No. Would they do it possibly for the technology? I doubt it. That's a little bit speculative. Again, I just watched Godzilla versus Kong last night. We had this guy who was claiming to be very rich, and he was building stuff that obviously cost billions and billions, if not trillions and trillions of dollars, assuming the technology could even be existed. Who's buying any of that stuff? I don't know. Where did the funding come from? Well, what does he sell exactly that, that made him so rich? Um, you know, those little things don't get explored in that. More likely in the real world, it's going to come from exploration for resources, mining. Um, there, we've covered this story before, where there's an asteroid somewhere out there which is worth something like $60 trillion, um, more than the entire, or $600 trillion, whatever it was, the asteroid or meteor or whatever it is, in with the natural resources and the materials that it was made up of, it was estimated that the value of that object in and of itself was worth more than the entire value of the earth as us human beings value it today on markets. So... The point being is that there's stuff out there that has an objective value that can make people and companies very rich and that's more likely the incentive so for those of you saying well isn't that what uh, every colonizer did to ruin every continent and every indigenous race and uh, you know and sort of the you know what was so scarred our histories yeah it is is it also what has fueled wealth and discovery and scientific and technological advancement? Yes, is it worth the price? I'm not gonna answer that for you. Everyone can answer it for yourself, but uh, the purpose of this show and this conversation is just to state that that is the most likely source of the funding being the private sector, some private uh, public partnerships, and the goal is likely resources. I mean, it always is. So this is not advocacy. This is just reality. Okay, I think we've talked enough about that for the moment, and I do invite you to read extraterrestrial. But if you don't want to read it, uh, Dr. Loeb has appeared on a number of podcasts. Um, he's done many, many interviews. So listen to him. He, you know, he'll he'll speak for himself, and you'll judge how good a job I did of translating his views for him, and which is which stuff is mine, which stuff is his. All right, the next book is Eric Von Danegan's Chariots of the Gods. Now, the first thing I noted when I read is this was a lot of speculation, similar to a lot of stuff that I've done here, similar to a lot of stuff that I did here with the Bobbies, Bobby Anthem and Bobby Blaze from the Inhumans, uh, with Shaheen, um, and other guests as well. Um, but there were certain specifics that merited what I thought were bullet points. And all of this ties into things you've heard before, the Masons, the way certain buildings are aligned with certain star systems. Uh, you know, the, the movie National Treasure was all based about how Washington, D.C. was was uh, built with alignments, uh, you know, on the forefront of the mind you know, the the Templars and the the Masons sort of being one and the same, or related, the pyramids, you know, all all of these cultures sort of being um, very astrologically and astronomically um, focused. And that was important in some of their sacred places and important buildings so you've all heard about these things you've heard about things like sacred geometry the golden compass uh ley lines we've talked about the le- ley lines here we've talked about telluric fields um, if you look up sacred geometry you will find no shortage of information um, it, it breaks down to how we decided what a second was uh, what a minute was what an hour was obviously days weeks months uh, how the months got skewed by the the Romans by adding two more months in it, but even when the months were measured by the moon, um, you know there were extra days and how different cultures dealt with the days. The Aztecs had I think six dead days, which were basically just festivals. Um, you know, we had, leap year is partly based on that. Daylight savings time is partly based on this. So uh, you know, there's there there are calendars from the the Mayans, the Olmecs. Um, the, the Sumerians, Persians, Chinese, that the thousands of years old that, um, you know, are amazingly accurate. So all of that has to do with sacred geometry and, and astronomy. So, you know, there's proof on it too, but there's also extrapolation, which is the, you know, the stuff of fancy or maybe fact or maybe in between. Probably a combination of both, but that's the fun stuff. That's the juice. And we're gonna certainly explore all of those issues as long as the show is on the air. We're gonna explore wherever the guests take us and wherever my mind takes us and wherever I can find information that takes us. But back to Von Danigan and some of the specific bullet points that that I took from his book that I thought they were pretty objective and should be laid out. So one is sort of what I was talking about, that stars were drawn for thousands of years in correct positions. Uh, and that, to, and by correct position, they meant the same position in the day as behind the sun. That's how we came to the constellations, where where stars would be in the same position uh, in the sky behind the sun at a particular uh, time of day, at day and night. So you know, obviously, we're in a is a sphere uh, that we can see. The, the horizon is. 360 degrees all the way around um so how do you pick a spot well they picked a spot they picked where the sun was uh and they picked a time of day when the sun was and they picked the time of day when the uh stars were there they created the constellations so that they could track those stars more easily and see the patterns from there you develop more constellations there's far more than 12 constellations by the way there's far more than the 12 zodiacs in fact earlier in an earlier episode of garden of doom we actually established that there's a 13th constellation that just got ignored um for months purpose and my constellation poor scorpio is only visible in that spot for i think it was six days or seven days now i guess poor scorpio realistically shouldn't be one of the signs but poor scorpio overachieved and and is a whole constellation and some other star system got uh edged out of that at least on this planet um, but anyway, uh, I digress, which is another one of my gifts. Um, also in ancient times, there were precisely cut crystal lenses. There were no such tools to do that. The craftsmanship to do that with those tools and with the, um, fragileness of the crystals. It's hard to contemplate how that could have happened and how crystal lenses for things like glasses, uh, could have been created and some artwork. So there's no doubt that there was some type of crystal lenses because they've been found, uh, and you know, almost like Umo Uma. I just put this together. These are not naturally occurring things. These are these are artificial. Uh, yet they were found in a time from a time before which technology existed to allow the carving, the creation of such technology. Another example. Next bullet point is that platinum was smelted and modeled, despite platinum only beginning to melt at eighteen hundred degrees Celsius. So, who was it that found a way to melt, model, and smelt platinum? Who was creating furnaces at one hundred eighty degrees Celsius, or eight? I'm sorry, one hundred. I'm sorry, one thousand eight hundred degrees Celsius. 1,800, 1,800 degrees Celsius. Not 180, 1,800 degrees Celsius. So what fire were they making that was that hot? I'm not even sure the lava is that hot. I didn't look into it, but um, maybe I should. But uh, I I don't think that it is. Um, The next bullet point, the ancient Chinese made aluminum, which must be extracted from bauxite under great chemical technical difficulties, those chemical technical um, methods did not exist. The technology to make them exist uh, or, to, or to allow them to exist did not, uh, were not in existence at the time. And it's almost impossible to believe that the ancient Chinese would have been able to make aluminum, aluminum thousands of years ago, except for the fact that they did. Now, we have some things that are a little bit speculative, but I think fun and interesting. There are drawings that look a lot like astronaut suits. Now, I did earlier say that I don't rule out imagination. I don't rule out a lot of things. I don't rule out battle helmets. But anyone who's listened to this show knows I don't rule out much of anything. Um, It's noteworthy, though, that these, I'll just call them astronaut suit drawings so that I'm not using different terms, are throughout the world and that they're really similar. So some of the places, and you can look, you can Google uh, astronaut drawings and put in the words, the places, Uh, one is in the Pakistani province of Kohistan, K-O-H-I-S-T-A-N, in France, in North America, in southern Zimbabwe, in the Sahara, in Peru, in Chile, in the sahara look up tassili t-a-s-s-i-l-i uh you'll find nearly identical drawings to in tulare t-u-l-a-r-e california Uh, obviously nowhere near the sahara we had strange helmeted beings depicted in siyak s-i-y-a-k iran There is a there's modern dress in wall drawings, which are called the White Lady of Brandenburg, which is in South Africa. Uh, If you take a look at many of the gods of Norway and Sweden, you'll notice many similarities. Um, And also take a look at the uh, artwork found in Val Comonica in Italy. That's V-A-L, second word, capital C, A-M-O. O N I C A, so all that stuff you'll see that's very similar all around the world uh, with uh, very ancient dates. There's an Old Testament description, so we're going back to Scripture again by the prophet Ezekiel, uh, where he describes sounds much like a flying vehicle, and the description is with windows and wings and wheels almost like a Harrier jump jet or a hovercraft description, maybe like an Osprey helicopter. In, in any event, the description of the vehicle uh, was incredible for the time, but sounds a lot like things that, that we have now, or at least could envision being uh, just, a, just a little bit above the horizon. Sort of like I'm picturing like the, uh, the jets from S.H.I.E.L.D., the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. I forgot what they called it already. Now, Von Danegan seemed to assume that there was some sort of nuclear weapons involved and some sort of nuclear ap- apocalypse, but I'm not really sure how well he understood nuclear weapons. Um, but there are other weapons that could have had the impact and radius described that are non-nuclear that probably didn't exist in the sixties, like what they called the mother of all bombs, the Mohab, the bunker buster, um, tactical weapons, non-nuclear Uh giant radius um but i i don't also rule out lower uh lower kiloton nuclear tax as well um obviously the nukes we have now are much stronger than the ones used on hiroshima and nagasaki and i imagine building smaller could have been possible but i don't know there is some evidence of of radiation and and uh, some type of uh, nuclear um charring but i'm not in, i'm not convinced that it matches nuclear weapons that we've used since you know or had since the 40s uh forward but again i sort of just explored that beforehand so moving on to the moses apocalypse in chapter 33 again of the bible eve looked up to heaven and saw a chariot of light drawn by four shining eagles smoke came up from its wheels so there again we have wheels Four shining eagles. Well, shining eagles and chariot. Yeah, I mean, shining eagle sounds sort of like a plane, right? Like a like a jet, a chariot of light. Uh, that chariot maybe was just the the tail propulsion, jet propulsion. Um, but pretty creative descriptions um, in the Old Testament. But if you think about them i mean think about what you you know when you look up in the sky and you see the the blue angels perform in annapolis or what you know at your state's fair or you know or football games or uh, when the air force and the navy and and other air services do their formations think about when the space shuttle flies takes off and and you see it leaving the atmosphere all right bullet point nine noah's father Lamech. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Talked to his father M- Methuselah. So we have Methuselah showing here, who consulted with Enoch, all about a non-humanly looking child. His wife said was his. So we have Lamech talking to Methuselah, who then went to talk to, about, to Enoch about Lamech's child, which he said was not his. Now we hear, you know, in the Bible and other stories about people saying, hey, I'm not the father of this child. And maybe we hear how it not in the Bible as well, now I think about it. Um, but that child was Noah. Uh, so Lamech, who's supposed to be Noah's father, saying, Noah's not my kid, and he doesn't quite look human. Um, Enoch told Methuselah about the flood, and then Enoch took a trip. In a fiery chariot so again we have the fiery chariot and enoch told methuselah about the flood who obviously got the information uh to noah or or he knew about it and someone got it to noah noah built the ark but noah was maybe nephilim or some uh hybrid that lemak says was not his um, but again, we have that fiery chariot. So forget all that other stuff about the story and all that fun stuff. We have a description of another fiery chariot. Now, maybe some of you are saying, yeah, they kept saying fiery chariot. Big deal. They, they, that, that's something they thought about. Maybe they saw meteorites out there and they thought it was a fiery chariot. I agree. Maybe, maybe that's the case. But the four shining eagles? I don't know. Yeah, could that be a, a, a meteor storm shower? Sure. But is that, Five and in a formation. Um, Do they look like eagles just because they're smaller, smaller circles? I mean, I've seen meteor showers, meteor storms. It's not usually five. They're not usually in formation and nothing usually looks like an eagle. Maybe they were just looking for a description. Okay, I I accept that as a maybe, but I find the other one more fun. All right, let's move out of the Old Testament for the moment and let's go into the sagas of Teohuanicoe. And the inscriptions on the gate of the sun, they discuss a landing of a mothership, landing the, quote, great mother, end quote. Those texts also describe experiments until humans came out right. So, you know, the architects and panspermia and the intelligent design uh, that humans are, you know, but an experiment and they didn't get us right, uh, that sort of fits in with the Sumerian mythology, the origin stories, um, that uh, the Anunnaki got us wrong several times until they got us even close enough to to write. And even then, they weren't exactly pleased. And uh, it was only until some of the gods pleaded to keep us around. Um, Not yeah, And and how'd they get rid of us? Well, a flood, of course, Uh, going back to the story of Noah and many other stories as well. So there's a lot of commonalities out there. And we've talked about these on shows time and time again, but hopefully we're growing our audience all the time. So uh, some of you haven't heard all the other shows and I invite you to check out all of the shows. They're not all about stuff like this, obviously. This show is all over the place. It's the opposite of of Seinfeld. Seinfeld called itself a show about nothing, which of course was not true, uh, but this show is a show about everything. Okay. Another bullet point, point. There's a smelting installation in Ezion Gaber, which is in Jordan, and I'm sorry sure I pronounced that wrong, but Ezion is E Z I O N hyphen Gaber, G E B E R. They refined copper 5,000 years ago there. Nobody can figure out how they knew how to refine copper 5,000 years ago and how they built that smelting installation. Now, we're going to move to India. The Indian Mahabharata tells of the Vimanas, V-I-M-A-N-A-S, I should probably spell Mahabharata, Harata, M-A-H-A-B-H-A-R-A-T-A, and the Vimanas were flying machines propelled by Mercury and propulsive winds. And these stories are at least 5,000 year old, years old. Now, how did they know something was propelled by Mercury, which was called Quicksilver back then, at least in uh, Europe? Um, and propulsive wind. What does propulsive wind sound like? Well, the expulsion from a jet, maybe? Something that we've heard about before. Um, Okay. Most of the vehicles described had tremendous dins or thunder, like massive engines, like turbines. We have those today. So all that makes sense today. All these descriptions make perfect sense today. Maybe not in Mercury, um, but uh, all the rest. They don't make sense, though, thousands of years ago. All right. Here's a word that I'm definitely going to butcher, not purposely, but the samsap takabara, which is Sanskrit, also from India. So I am going to spell that. Bear with me. S-A-M-S-A-P-T-A-K-A-L. I'm sorry, no L. K-A-B-A-D-H-A. And that's, again, in Sanskrit. And it distinguished between both flying and non-flying vehicles. So cars, trucks, something that didn't fly. Uh, and the flying vehicles, so that's pretty interesting as well. That that those peoples, or the visitors, or the Anunnaki, or the Veda, whatever whatever we call them, be it an Indian history, traditions, folklore, mythology, theology, whatever you want to, whatever word you're more comfortable thinking of does have descriptions of gods and their gods were blue and that is different than the descriptions of the Anunnaki. Uh, and i also believe it's different than the descriptions of the veda so there was a distinction between the the gods of the hindu panoply um, and these other peoples or visitors i am going a little bit off right now to say that there's also stories about ancient Atlantis, that it went to war with a culture in Asia and lost, which is sort of hard to believe if Atlantis was this you know, apex of technology at the time. Well, we've talked about on the show before, why did there only have to be one? It seems like the Atlantis legend itself implies there was at least another rival culture out there with technology or powers that not only rivaled Atlantis, enough to convince Atlantis that they could go to war with it successfully, But they lost um so you know again the veda and the anunnaki may not be the same the you know the gods may not have been the same as the demons in norse mythology we had the we had the the asser which were the asgardians but if you remember frey freya odin's wife was from i think the yasir which were a rival to the asgardians and that sort of forged the peace. but they were you know, sort of the equals of the Asgardians. Um, But you also had the fire giants and you had the ice giants. So you did have different races that were rivals and, you know, were threats. So it's sort of the same thing. Not that much different if you think about it between the angels that sided with God and the angels that went up against God. So, you know, again, two or more powerful peoples, beans out there. So again, you have sort of the same story, just in different places. And some of the descriptions are very similar, not all, but the, the story is the same. And again, you know, like any game of Operator, things change over time, especially millennia. All right. So in the Udhisthira, which is spelled Y U D H I S T H. IRA, these are people, um, like this describes people like Enoch and Elijah, who left her earth in a heavenly ch- uh, chariot. So we already talked about Enoch earlier, so sort of an early wise man that uh, people like Methuselah, the oldest man known, uh, and Lamak consulted with, and then Elijah, known as Elijah the prophet, both left earth in a heavenly uh, chariot. Not that different than the story of Muhammad, who also left earth. I, I think on a, on a flying horse uh, you know over a rainbow. Is that much different than a heavenly chariot, a flying horse? Not really? I mean, most chariots are pulled by horses, right? All right. Back to things that are here on Earth that can't be disputed away from Jeff's little stories or, or stories that Jeff is repeating that other people have, have made Jeff's mind turn into a whirling dervish. Um, so there is a welded iron column in Delhi. It's there right now. It has no rust. It has no weathering whatsoever. It's over 4,000 years old. It's iron. Nobody knows how there's no rust or weathering. I mean, everyone knows the rust is basically iron oxide, you mm-hmm. know red brownish sharp it hurts it can give you tetanus or other diseases um, and it's hard to avoid that's why we have infrastructure week all the time all right some less exciting stuff there's a thousand year old jade jewelry jades from China nothing special about this except that it's found in Guatemala so unless you believe that the Chinese and the and the Central Americans were having active trade a thousand years ago, Uh, That seems unlikely. Um, So Jade somehow jumped continents. Yes, it could have been traders, I suppose, but who was trading? Um, Who was trading back then between Asia and North America a thousand years ago? I don't know about anyone. I don't know about anyone in objective history, but yet the jade is here. So that is some interesting stuff. I hope you found it interesting. I hope I told these stories in a way that was interesting and made a little bit of sense to you with our book reports. Um, so let me tell you what's coming. I alluded to it earlier in the show. Um We're going to go back to our format of guests. I am currently talking to two people that are part of the NACON conference, and hopefully we will have set those dates shortly and maybe one or two bonus shows will drop this week. Next week, we're going to do episodes 7 through 12, at least, on Land of the Lost uh, with our fun panel. Uh, and in two weeks, we have our friend Bobby Blades coming back, and we're going to remember how we left off with the Church of Satan and realized that Satan uh, really wasn't part of the Church of Satan. Or when I thought of Satanists, I, I thought of something completely different than what the Church of Satan is. And we learned that the Church of Satan really isn't the same as Luciferians. So we're going to talk about Luciferians. Um so if you, if you haven't heard that show, I definitely recommend you check out the Church of Satan Without Satan episode um, between now and then, or before you listen to the show that's going to drop on or about the 18th. And ah, boy, oh, I've got a show coming up with Chris. Silence of the Ams, who has been with us on the um, Indigenous show. And uh, he also was on a, another show as well a few weeks ago. He's a great speaker. He has his own podcast on the Rational Rage Network, which Gardner of to is proud to be a, a part of, um, which he calls the Far Center. And it's a very interesting podcast. You should listen to it. It's like his essays. And he's a great speaker and he's a well-organized talker, and thinker. Uh, he also does wrestling podcasts, so I'm, I'm not the only wrestling podcaster that, that uh, jumps into the deep water sometimes. Um, but he's going to be on and, and as you may recall from some of the prior episodes he was an ordained minister, he did his Uh, Mormon mission, uh, and he's, he, he was, well, he was on the apocryph, uh, the apocryphal, uh, gospels show. Did a great job there. And he's gonna break down for us a lot of the differences in the different sects of Christianity. So, you know, to me, that's very interesting. Hopefully it is to you. Maybe you are a Christian and you already know all of this stuff. Maybe you're a Christian and you're wondering, you know, what's the difference between Catholic and Methodist. What's the difference between Lutheran and uh, Protestant? You know, what's Presbyterian mean? Um, I wonder. I think I knew some of these things at one point, but I forgot. So hopefully Chris will be able to educate us all and, uh, you know, Hopefully, you'll find that educational and informative and entertaining, but definitely at least two out of three. So, those are a couple of the shows uh, that are coming up beyond the land of the lost and the continuing Nacon speakers, who I believe we're going to have, you know, continuing through April twenty fourth. And I've got guests booked into May, um, working on some stuff with uh, people who are going to talk to us about folklore from around the world. So we're going to have some, we're going to continue to do fun and educational stuff and hopefully less solo shows from me. So keep on listening. Thank you for bearing with me for this solo show. I hope you find it interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe it sparked your own imagination, do your own research, and maybe one day you'll be doing your own podcast and you'll teach me some stuff. All right. Thanks a lot for listening to Garden of Doom, and we'll check you out later this week. Peace out, everyone.
1: En y vont à côté de mon Le jour, dans les premiers reflets du ciel, avant la chaleur du soleil, sous la dernière étoile. Sous la lune d'argent